food insecurity, climate change, and conflict is placing considerable pressure on the global food system. Inequality, access to land, access to nutrient-rich foods, and the loss of local food cultures and diversity are realities further amplified in the new risk landscape. These challenges are also playing out differently depending on the region you inhabit. In other words, the Global South and the Global North are both feeling the pressure, however, in disparate ways. Today's guests discuss the challenges our global food systems face and explore the ways through which we can move towards more resilient, sustainable, and just food systems. My name is Annette Hertwig. Welcome to the Resilience Hub's COP27 special podcast series on Rethink Talks. My name's Albert Nordstrom. I'm the head of knowledge and evidence at the Global Resilience Partnership. I'm also a researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Center here in Stockholm, Sweden. I work on very many broad uh, questions related to resilience, which is the capacity of a system to cope, adapt and transform in a time of very rapid change, working on different types of systems all around the world. And recently with the work with the Global Resilience Partnership, we're working very tightly with different businesses, organizations, NGOs, funding agencies to try and understand what builds resilience on the ground and how you can measure and assess and measure it. My name is Sibel Queiroz. Uh, I am a researcher working with Albert um, at the Global Resilience Partnership with Knowledge and Evidence. And I'm also a team leader for the Sustainable Development and Resilience team at Stockholm Resilience Center. And the bulk of my work has been working with social ecological resilience and sort of how can we build it from like across scales in the context of like agricultural landscapes and food systems broadly. So food systems and agriculture are facing many challenges, but to make things easier for this podcast, we can focus on two very important and broad key challenges. First one is that the food system is really facing more turbulence and more pressures than ever before. So what we're seeing now with the price of food spiking up shouldn't really be a surprise because we have empirical evidence that the past 50 years have seen an increase in food shock frequency. So food shocks are just happening more and more frequently. And some of the major drivers of these shocks, they include extreme weather events, spread of disease, geopolitical conflict, situation of a trend that began sometime around 50, 60 years ago. And we talk of this as a new risk landscape. Risks are becoming more frequent and prominent. Um, and it's not only things like drought and fire, pest outbreaks, you know, the classical things you can imagine affecting food systems, but increasingly it's things like price fluctuation in the in inputs, for example, fossil fuels, fertilizer and technology, changes in those elements are also affecting the food system and, and acting as shocks. Changes in policies, for example, and speculation, financial speculation on food commodities. So really now in a risk landscape with a, a mix of different drivers really pounding on the food system. And the second big challenge, that's one of the big challenges that we're in a new risk landscape. The second big challenge is that the global food system, really you can look at it as having certain features that make it vulnerable 
to this risk landscape, to the type of turbulence we're seeing now. And those three features, I would say, is that it's a hyper-connected system, it's a very simplified system, and it's a decoupled system. And let's try and unpack those very, very quickly right now, those different elements. So when we talk about the system being hyper-connected, um, we mean that it's got connections within itself and to other things around it. For example, the number of regional trade agreements in force connected to food has more than tripled since 2000. So trade is becoming much more prominent with the, with the context of food. Nearly all new cropland areas brought into production from 1986 to today were used to grow export crops. So as a consequence, you have a global food system that's very much focused on intensive export-driven production destined for global markets. This has a lot of consequences. One of them is that sectors that weren't connected before are intertwined now. An example is the aquaculture sector, which traditionally relied heavily on capture fisheries as the main source for feed, is now shifting towards agriculture for crop-based feed, for example, soy and rapeseed and maize. So you have these connections between different types of sectors in the food system, which we'll get back to that later, has a bunch of different consequences. The second feature is that it's a simplified food system. So currently we're really focusing on purposefully selecting and producing a certain set of harvestable products. Um, and this is driving simplification in the food system. For example, in, if you look at it on a global scale, global portfolios of different um, crop types, such as maize, wheat, rice and barley become increasingly simplified. So there's a shift towards a sort of globally standardized food supply based on these few crop types. And the third element is what we call decoupling, right? So, and this can sound like a paradox because we talked about there's an increased connectivity, um, but when we talk about decoupling is one, we are actually decoupling food production systems from the natural processes that sustain a desired outcome. For example, you know, um, pest control by natural um, insects, right? Instead, human inputs are increasingly used to mimic these natural processes. So, you know, you, you, you put in um, fertilizers, artificial feed inputs, pesticides, herbicides, and things like this. Another form of decoupling is it emerges as the geographical distance between where you grow your food and where you consume it increases. And this can cause a kind of a, a mental disconnect, a decoupling. As consumers, we rarely know what the environmental impacts of our food is as it's grown, right? So that makes it difficult for policy to, to be functional. And very quickly, what does this imply for the food system? We spoke of this connectivity becoming hyperconnective. You're having decoupling, you're having simplified food systems. One key consequence is that shocks that were previously contained within a geographic area or a sector, they become contagious and more prevalent. So for example, you can have a drought or a crop pest outbreak causing a disruption um, in an agricultural landscape, but that can have consequences in the aquaculture sector very far away because now they're connected through this kind of feed connection. And that's what you're seeing when you're looking at this from an empirical, empirical point of view as well. You're seeing that these shocks are becoming much more connected than before. So actually, unfortunately, the global production or the global food system has these features that actually amplify shocks and we're constantly going into uh, a time of more of these shocks. So it's really a bad, bad chemistry there. I guess that there's 
not one, of course, but like several misconceptions that can prevent action that needs to be taken to achieve these more resilient, sustainable and healthy food systems. Uh, but I will just mention like two important ones. The first one, I think, is that there's still very much present this idea that we can fix the problems of the food system through incremental change or a few silver bullet types of solutions, like a few like ideal or perfect solutions. And although I think that there is a wide recognition that the current food system needs to change, there's still a lack of a deeper awareness of how significant that change needs to be. Um, and I think it's important to say that we won't fix the food crisis by just producing more food or increasing food aid. And um, so the problems are far more deeper than that. We have currently a triple crisis where you have like climate, food and security challenges tightly interlinked and that cannot be handled separately. And this means that like to solve the food crisis, um, we will really need to address the root drivers of food insecurity, climate change, conflict, being aware that these drivers interact in complex ways. So, you know, things like increasing food production are also a part of the solution, but they won't solve some of these most deeply rooted problems of the food system, such as like inequalities on food distribution, access to land, access to healthy, affordable food for all, loss of local food cultures, decline of crop and nutrient diversity. Changing the current food system requires what we say that it's a fundamental transformation of its current structure and dynamics in ways that explicitly integrate humans and nature. So tackling that decoupling that Albert just talked about before um, and that are able to meet the challenges and the needs of the most vulnerable and fragile regions. And this is also important to say because these are the places that are already suffering the impacts of this uh, triple crisis um, and so if their realities and needs are ignored, these social injustice, injustice, ah, injustices and environmental pressures experienced by these communities will be aggravated, sort of leading you know, to further food insecurity, further conflict, further violence. And then my second point and another important misconception that I think it's pretty much around is also that, you know, that we cannot afford to invest in resilience. And I would say that you know, trade-offs do exist, and I think it's important that we admit that, and especially in the short term. But on the other hand, I would say that it's the other way around. You know, in the new era of the Anthropocene that Albert just talked about, we cannot afford not to invest in resilience. I mean, we just have the example from 2021, like the high amount of extreme weather events that we experience all across the world, you know, like severe drought in Africa, South America, parts of Europe extreme like heavy rain events and flooding in Asia and other parts of Europe. This led like to, you know, pretty massive uh, failures on several crop and life livestock systems. And, you know, we are kind of feeling the effects now this contributed to the high food prices that we are experiencing now this year in 2022. And so these losses will just become more and more frequent. So in this new sort of turbulent landscape, as we call it, that we are living in, I guess that being efficient, efficiency gets a new meaning. The systems and sectors that will perform the best will be the ones that actually have a higher capacity to navigate and quickly adapt to fast changing conditions. So not the ones that are like optimized for a particular type of stable environment. And there are studies providing clear evidence that investments on diversity, which is this critical property of resilience do pay off. And for instance, like some recent 
research showed, for instance, like how countries that increase their national crop diversity at the national level are able to ensure much more stable food supplies over time. We haven't yet done this mind shift that is necessary to adapt to the new reality that we're living in. I mean, the world has never been stable, but in many parts of the world, we do have, we do behave and we think as if it is stable. We have been having some kind of pockets of stability that probably lead us sort of acting like that and thinking like that. We humans have mastered sort of the art of suppressing variation and disturbances in order to optimize productivity. Like the food system is full of those examples. Like we use pesticides to get rid of pests. We use artificial fertilizers to compensate for the nutrient and soil loss. We use trade to buffer production shocks and local supply disruptions. But the magnitude and the pace of the turbulent times that we are entering in require new ways of thinking. Like this type of solutions won't be sort of enough. Uh, and they require the use of much more sustainable practices that reconnect humans and nature and a much stronger investment on resilience and on the capacity to deal with change and to deal with multiple crises at once, which is also something that our brains don't really like to do. <laughs> so, like, so these mind shifts uh, are difficult, uh, I would say. Another thing is also that you know, our societies are, are built in silos. Like we think a bit in silos. Our societies are compounded by highly specialized sectors and institutions. This is the way how we often operate. And this is also one of the main reasons why sometimes, you know, we can get easily stuck in this idea of sort of one type of solutions or like the searching for the perfect solution. <laughs> It's also one of the main reasons that makes it difficult to have like effective collaborative efforts like across scales and across uh, sectors. There are differences, both in the level of degree that these misconceptions are being perceived in the global north and in the global south, and also in terms of what are the impacts that they might have. Just the impacts of this triple crisis of food insecurity, climate change, conflict, you know, they are being expressed uh, to different degrees in different parts of the world. And this also leads to very different degrees of awareness and perception of like how big is the threat of this sort of triple crisis. So in the global south, for example, many of these impacts, they are already being quite severe. Um, and so that also makes the links between this, these three crises much more visible, right? But in the global north, I would say that this awareness sort of starts to grow now you know, with a combination of this sort of a quite steep increase in the number of extreme weather events that we have been experiencing these past years. The war in Ukraine, of course, like one that is one of the main breadbaskets of the world um, and the energy crisis. So there's these different degrees of awareness, I would say. While within the scientific community and some of the policy arenas, there's a consensus around the need for transformative change in the food system. In many cases, I would say that these discussions are still very North-based and they miss to address the realities and the needs of the most vulnerable and fragile regions, which are actually at the heart of the problems of the food system. So when we think about pathways to this transformative change, we need to think that they need to be adapted to the context. For example, we know that in order to meet climate goals, we need to stop agricultural land expansion. Doing this in countries that are suffering from extreme food insecurity, because I mean, there's just 
there's just this amount of land, right? And you need to choose what to do with it. This can result in, in short-term impacts and lost benefits for the local communities. So in these places, healthy land expansion needs to come hand in hand with measures to ensure food security, such as investments in integrated farm livelihood approaches, together with you know, systemic forms of sustainable intensification, for example, or other sorts of solutions. Another example is that although we know that we need this urgent shift to plant-based diets in most parts of the world, if we want to sort of transform towards more climate resilient food systems, there are substantial context-specific differences in how this transition should be made. Like in most vulnerable and fragile regions, animals are one of the main assets and sources of food security to households in rural communities, for instance. So if we remove animal food sources from these regions, that would have like major negative impacts on food security. So in these places, we need to think about other solutions, you know, so for instance, like more sustainable intensification of animal production can be an alternative way of achieving these double goals of food security and sustainability. So that's an example, like how this sort of things can be experienced very differently and that we need to think differently when it, we think about solutions as well in different contexts. A first element we would need to change, I would say, is to diversify, diversify, diversify. So by diversifying agriculture, for example, to reduce its global reliance on major grains at the same time as we incentivize different farming approaches that reduce reliance on energy-intensive synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, and other types of intensive inputs, this would have a great effect by you know diversifying your type of agro-ecosystem that you're having. You mitigate pollution impacts, you protect vital ecosystems and biodiversity, which have been shown in the past to be fantastic for building farm level um, resilience. At the same time, by diversifying production, say away from a reliance on major grains, by investing in alternative crops and changing food processing to utilize other ingredients, that could increase flexibility and substitutability, substitutability in global food markets, which again is, is, is a good thing. Um, and this can also create synergies, for instance, you know, if you shift towards um, a less dependent of the food dependency of the food system on fossil fuels, you actually contribute to lower carbon emissions while at the same time also not being so sensitive to increasing prices and trade disruptions of energy, which is one of the reasons we're having the current food crisis right now, right? How this can be done, it's extremely complicated. I mean, on a broad stroke, I would say we need to kind of shift agricultural policies away from a currently dominant focus on just how much food we grow, like the volume of food we produce, to more focusing on the environmental quality of the food or the nutritional quality of the food. But this, I mean, this really requires holistic approaches that work across big food landscapes and multiple um, associated benefits to the agrosystem and not only how much food is being grown, right? A second strategy is possibly to reconceptualize what we mean by connectivity. We spoke about that initially as one of the big challenges of the food system is that it's becoming increasing or it is extremely hyper-connected. Connectivity isn't per se a bad thing. We need some levels of connectivity within the food system, absolutely. But one potentially could think about how we reconceptualize this type of connectivity within trade, for example? Do we want to shift down towards more local and regional markets as alternatives to a global trade? If we go down that pathway, I think it's critical, and a lot of voices have been raised here, that it's important to connect smallholders to those type of new local regional markets. 
and that trade policies and regulations that are associated with that shift near, need to be tweaked so that they protect smallholders and increase and allow for the participation and the voice of these type of farmers in international trade. And, and a final branch is to look at the demand side and, and consumption side. So this is a critical component. Many have raised that of a transition towards a more sustainable and resilient food system. Um, and this could happen, you know, from a policy and industry-led change to disintense in, to break the incentives around food waste. This can bring and result in large cost savings, while at the same time being a really important mitigation of emission sources. And then you can focus on the consumption side, um, intervene to try and encourage healthier, more sustainable diets through the reduced consumption of meat which you know, its production often depends on high volumes of grain for feed and fossil fuels, and also um, reduced consumption of highly processed foods, which have a common base of staple grains, but which provide very low nutritional values. And all of this together can, um, can hopefully reduce overall demand for crops while contributing to lower emissions in different sectors, more biodiverse food systems, and hopefully improve public health. But it's a mix of things that are needed. It's important to to mention that we do need to accept that implementing these multiple solutions will be challenging. I mean, there will be trade-offs between different types of actions and there will be unintended consequences of this transformative process. And we need to start gathering a better understanding of what those might be and direct support to the most effective, affected groups to mitigate event, eventual like negative impacts. You know, for example, just thinking about some of the things you mentioned, Albert, like, you know, sh shifting from animal to plant-based diets with a higher share of fresh vegetables and fruits, for instance, will require considerable changes in the way how we produce food. And where do we produce food? Like many of these fresh foods require irrigation and a much higher volume of water to be produced than, than cereals, for example. So as we know that water will be, or better said, even already is like one of the most scarce resources and will be even more with climate change, this will brings up will bring up like new challenges that we need to tackle. Another example like of unintended consequences of the implementation of different solutions. It's an, an example I came across from India, for instance, that was described in a recent paper assessing the success of the implementation of climate smart agricultural uh, practices. So in this case, for instance, they were using model farmers to disseminate disseminate improved farming practices among other farmers. And what happened was that these model farmers actually ended up becoming some kind of power brokers, controlling access to opportunities, you know, favoring males and excluding female farmers, for instance. So ended up like reinforcing already existing inequalities. So these things can happen and will happen. And this should not by any means prevent us from taking action, but is rather to illustrate the complexity of these issues and just be aware that we need to be prepared for these challenges to come and become a bit better to enforcing some of these potential unintended impacts. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Hub's COP27 podcast series on Rethink Talks. This season is a collaboration between the Stockholm Resilience Center and the Resilience Hub. We will release new podcast episodes throughout COP27, and we invite you to listen to additional episodes and previous seasons on rethink.earth.